Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm Jay Dylan Proctor, and with me here in Cord Purgatory is Amanda Sparrow and Anthony Alegria. Today in our program, we're going to be discussing the origins of Easter eggs and what that has to do with Mary Magdalene. Also, we're going to talk about the concept of glory and put that in its historical context. Then we will wrap up our podcast today with a conversation about Notre Dame and contraceptives. Thank you so much for being with us today, and let's get right into it. In our game of Hot Nardo Sanctified, we're going to examine what exactly Easter eggs have to do with Mary Magdalene and Easter. So, let's get right to the overview. Have you ever wondered why it is that we associate colored eggs with Easter? The answer can be traced back to Mary Magdalene and her testimony to Emperor Tiberius Caesar. After Jesus goes to the cross, dies, is resurrected, and makes his ascension, his disciples are challenged to step up to the plate of ministry and carry the gospel message to the world. Often we think of the twelve apostles, but there are many more disciples sharing the gospel. Not the least of which was Mary Magdalene, who not only worked with John the Evangelist in Ephesus, but also took the gospel to Rome. Mary Magdalene had an opportunity to take the gospel to Emperor Tiberius Caesar. According to legend, she was sharing the gospel with him, and he ridiculed the thought of a man resurrecting, even to the point of claiming that a man resurrecting would be just as ridiculous as the egg in front of Mary changing color. But Mary's egg did change color, and the emperor realized that there was merit and authority to her testimony. Other variations of the legend include a scenario where Mary Magdalene is bringing a plain egg to Emperor Tiberius Caesar, as it was customary to bring the emperor a gift if you were able to gain his audience. However, as she speaks to him, the egg changes color to give authority to the resurrection. Any way you hear the legend, it is always centered around the concept of Mary Magdalene evangelizing directly to Emperor Tiberius Caesar himself, and an egg changes color to show the power of the resurrection. Now for the question, hot, not, or sanctified. Of course, when we say hot, we are answering that this is an important theological inspiration for us. If we say not, then it is not theologically inspiring. And if we say sanctified, then we are saying only God's sanctified judgment can decide. Well, we have learned to Skype recently, and we have Amanda with us. So, Amanda, what do you think about Mary Magdalene and her egg? Hot, not, or sanctified? Oh, okay, sorry. All right, so in answering the question of hot, not, or sanctified on the story of Mary Magdalene and the egg, I'm going to have to definitely go with hot. And I do want to make a clarification when I say hot. I'm talking about the story. And the only reason I want to make clarification is because Mary Magdalene is often tied to some other stories about her and about her character that even in Scripture is not revealed or told. Um, she's tied with the story of the woman who's caught in adultery and some other things, but that person is never really named. And all we know about Mary Magdalene for sure is that uh, Jesus cast out demons from her and then she became a follower of him. And um, and then we hear through this story that she goes even to Rome to explain, uh, to evangelize. And what really makes this truly inspirational to truly get the mark hot on that is the tradition says that she had to bring a gift and she brings a simple egg, which seems so crazy that you go before an emperor, the ruler of the known world, and you bring an egg. 
And yet through her, through the simplicity that was her, through her gift, and through the message of Christ, the resurrection and the power of the resurrection was revealed. So that truly is inspirational. All right, very good. And Anthony, what are your thoughts? Hot, not or sanctified? Mary Magdalene. Um, I would definitely say hot. It's uh, a pretty cool and interesting story. And I think, you know, uh, what compelled her to bring an egg as a gift for the emperor, you know, uh, we do not know. Perhaps it is the spirit, but I do think that it's a, it's a pretty cool story. Well, on the egg thing, there are other legends. And again, this legend in and of itself is something which is documented in church history as opposed to something which is derived straight out of scripture. But there are other stories which have Mary Magdalene, when she goes to the tomb, carrying a basket of eggs with her. There's a few just different things throughout church history which involve Mary Magdalene and, and eggs. And that's really where some people put the origin of this. However, again, going before Caesar, she's got the one egg, it changes color. Sometimes it's, it's depicted as she's at a dinner and she has sort of the egg there as part of the dinner and it's presented in that way. But in the either way you look at it, it's always a egg changing color to represent the power of the resurrection. And my thoughts personally is again, I think this is very hot. I, I like the idea of, of imagery being used in, in the church. Again, a lot of times we, we associate so much of church history, we would say, oh, that's Catholic. That's not relative to us today. But yet we have things like Easter eggs involved in our, our regular Easter season. Again, at the time we're making this video, it's in Holy Week. And there are a lot of people who are going out to buy Easter eggs. And a lot of people are craving those Reese's eggs. But not always do we know the, the history behind why we've gotten things hand down to us. Uh, one thing also that I think is interesting is that, like, you know, if you just look at it kind of loosely, you, you notice it's like, well, all right. So the egg changed color in her hand while she was talking to the emperor. So what, what, what does that have to do with Easter? Which is funny because Easter is kind of misleading also because it's actually the celebration of the resurrection, right? So, right. Um, you know, whenever you learn also that their conversation and why the egg changed color was because he claimed that it would be as ridiculous as... The egg changing color. The resurrection would be yeah. as ridiculous as the egg, egg changing color. That really brings it all into like full circle, you know? Right. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, it very much comes full circle to the theme of the resurrection. Again, the, the entire claim is that the egg changes color to, to show that there is sincerity to the resurrection. It's very, very interesting. What really does the concept of glory refer to? In this game of Hot Not or Sanctified, we are going to examine just that. What does the word glory mean? Oftentimes we say things are glorious. The term glory fills our songs, our legends, and our art. We even find scripture talking about Christ being glorified. But what is really at the heart of this concept? The concept of glory has evolved over time. But if we return to the ancient world when scripture was first recorded, we will find that glory is very specific in referring to divine presence. The concept of glory has come to mean something similar to that of praise in the modern world, but this is not how the word was originally intended to be used. Glory is divine presence, and when we are in glory, we are in the presence of God. To glorify is to reveal or bring about the presence of God. For Christ to be glorified means that Christ is revealed as being God in our presence. 
This is a very literal use of the term glory. The temple in Jerusalem, originally built by Solomon in the 10th century BC and then rebuilt again in the 5th century BC, was described as being glorious. It housed the Holy of Holies and was a sign of God's presence, where all could look up and be encouraged knowing that God was with them. The concept of glory is central to many of our songs and hymns. Take for instance the battle hymn of the Republic, which has the lyrics, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, as well as, Glory, glory, hallelujah. These are examples of people exclaiming that God's presence is with them as they enter into battle. What does glory mean for us? Now for the question, hot, not, or sanctified. And of course, when we say hot, we are meaning that this is theologically inspiring. When we say not, we are saying that it is not. And if we say sanctified, then we are simply saying that only God's sanctified judgment can decide. Now, we have Amanda hanging out with us today on Skype. So let's go ahead to Amanda and get your thoughts. Amanda, what do you think? Hot, not, or sanctified, the concept of glory being divine presence. Okay, so the idea of glory. Um, I think when we first hear that glory, we think of things like fame and glory, or even some of the pictures we saw in the video that explained what glory was. We see these battle scenes, and we think of glory as something to fight for. We think, again, of fame, of fortune, of being popular, or well-known, or infamous. Um, and the idea of glory, really and truly in this context, is, is something that can only be derived from God. It, it is something solely about God's presence. Therefore, for people to be glorified, they have to be transformed more and more to the image of God. And so in that context, this idea, glory is definitely something that is very inspirational. And like we heard in the story with Mary Magdalene, the simple person becomes profoundly important, not because of something within herself, but because she is connected to, she is in relationship with the divine. And so as long as we keep it within that context, that this is definitely a theologically hot concept. Fantastic. Anthony, what are your thoughts? Hot, not a sanctified, the idea that glory is divine presence. Well, um, of course, I would I would consider that to be hot. But, you know, one a couple of things that I think is really interesting about it is, you know, it really changes the meaning behind a lot of what we might see in Scripture. You know, whenever people would talk about glory and other things. And then, you know, it also really changes for me what um the word glorify means because you know a lot of times we're told that you know we should glorify the lord and other things of that nature and people will say you know glorify him but then you know i think a lot of times it's not understood what that means but now you know it means that you know to glorify is to reveal the nature of his divinity yeah. so we would have to be doing something that shows that our god is divine and i think that that is a pretty awesome way to think about glorifying god especially in comparison to just saying that he is great you know to right. do something that shows that our god is divine i well, think that's awesome so often i feel like we we really have have sold ourselves short by being so unfamiliar with history and not only that in the the modern especially the protestant world but in the modern church we we really have a lot of things handed down to us that we don't fully understand what they are one of those concepts for sure is glory, but also the concept of worship is wildly misunderstood. Again, I'm thoroughly convinced if you got 10 people in a room who, for lack of better terms, were a, a someone involved in worship, I guess you could say leadership, if you ask them all what the word worship means, you would get radically different answers. And I, I remember when I was doing undergraduate at Trebekah, you could ask people this question, 
some people could talk about it for days and not really formulate anything meaningful and other people would have sort of a concise, very direct answer. It's all over the place what worship means. And we've really conflated the concept of worship, which we don't understand well with glory. And we're really in sort of this limbo state where we don't exactly understand who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. When it comes to the concept of glory, and again, the on the overview, the tagline there on the end is what does glory mean for us? I think if we understand glory means actually the presence of God and glorifying is revealing the presence of God, that means we actually have to be doing work in the world, which is reflective of God. We actually have to be revealing God's nature to the world around us, which of course that means we're called to a life of holiness. We should be living life in such a way that reflects God's holiness and the nature of Christ. All of these things are very important, but really when it comes to glory, it's something which originates from God and then comes to be with us. It's not just a, a momentary praise. It's not just a, a idea of looking up to, to God and, and doing nothing about it, but it actually means being in the presence of God and being inspired to do something great. One of the things that really bothers me about the modern church is we feel like we're so unimaginative in the things that, that we can do in the kingdom. People, they sing a lot of songs, you know, Awaken Me or something like that is the general sentiment of a lot of our modern music. But we don't have a, a vision of what we can do once we are woken up. We're stuck in this perpetual entry-level state and we don't really understand what the glory of God is going to look like in our lives. And as we come to this conversation, and we examine this, I really want us to be inspired to say, when the glory of God comes in our life, maybe that means I go and I pursue a, a medical degree and become an expert in the field and, and fight some disease. Maybe they, that means that I go and I open up a business and do something productive to, to bring people into the kingdom. You know, we look at people from church history. I know in this game of hot, not or sanctified, we've examined people like St. Sebastian, who's effectively a double agent in the Roman army. He becomes a, a Roman soldier so that it can help Christians being persecuted. We look at someone like Francis of Rome, who opens up a plague hospital in her house. These are people who go out and do magnificent things. And so oftentimes in the, the modern Protestant world, we say, well, if you're, you're a person who believes in Christ, they envision it somebody sitting in church, maybe they've got their arm raised listening to, to music or something like that. But our, we don't have the imagination to say, we're going to go out and we're going to truly be productive. We're going to reveal the glory of God. We're going to have the presence of God come in our world and we're going to do magnificent things. Well, anyways, I think it's very encouraging understanding what glory means. And it really helps us have a clear thought about our calling here in this modern day and age. about Notre Dame and contraceptives. There really is no other way to describe this conversation. Anyways, Anthony, go ahead and enlighten us on this recent event. All right, so according to a story coming to us from churchmilitant.com, Notre Dame, shame. Notre Dame has decided to adopt the policy to provide contraceptives for its more poor students, and this is to alleviate their burden. Now, um, another interesting detail about this is that the president of the university, Father Jenkins, reportedly opposes the use of contraceptives and yet is the one basically pushing for this policy. So let's talk about that. All right. So let's talk about this because I really think this is a, a multi-tiered issue. And we're not going to get into the whole idea on what's the church's stance on, on contraceptives. We're not going to say anything for the Catholics. I'm not answering for them. Obviously, I'm a Protestant. I'm a minister in the Church of the Nazarene. That's a whole other conversation. But what we see happening here really is someone saying, 
there are poor students, we're going to give something to them. Okay, let's talk about that. What does it actually mean to, to give to the poor? What does it mean to do charity? What does that virtue actually mean? And are we just choosing that virtue at the expense of others? One of the big problems that we have in our world is oftentimes people, they will choose one virtue and they will cast a lot of other ones out. And this really allows them to do whatever they may have as their personal motive or maybe their just personal conviction without any checks and balances. One of the things that is so beautiful about the calling of the people of God is that Christ has given us a number of virtues to follow. We are to be people of truth, people of compassion, people of love and empathy, but also people of logos and transformation. And so often we find people who are really into love and empathy, but they reject transformation. They don't really want anything to do with that. We might find people who are very good at orderly transformation, but not very empathetic. The thing is, we are called to be well-balanced in our virtues. We're not to be people who choose and pick whichever one we like. Even G.K. Chesterton notes that it's more dangerous to have roaming virtues going around than it is just to indulge in vices. And this whole issue really sounds like that, that instance where roaming virtues are at hand, people pick one, and they, they throw everything to the side. So, a couple of questions we have for this at Notre Dame. One, what evidence is there that there are poor students, as they had written in their own language, what are the, the evidence of the poverty-stricken students having issues getting these items? Is there even evidence of that to start with? Or is this just something which is branded a certain way in order to get something through? A lot of times people have these conversations, but they don't ever bring hard evidence with them to the table. And say that there even are people doing this that are actually in a position where they can't afford these things. Then we have the next question. What role does the church play in this position? Just because someone says, I'm poor, I can't afford this, you have to give it to me. That's not inherently consistent with the nature of Christ. Christ is, again, someone who is of love, but also of logos. There is always an orderly transformation. Just because Christ says, I will love you unconditionally, that doesn't mean Christ says, I will help you do whatever it is that you want. If you want to rob a bank, I will have, through divine messengers, they will bring you the schematics of your closest bank and give you all the layout on how to do this. This is absurd. Just because we have a, a personal desire that we want, whether it be good or bad, doesn't necessarily mean that God is going to come in and set it right in our lap. There is a, a orderly progression in which things move. And of course, the call of Christ is always towards holiness. So whenever we see people in the church say something like, oh, well, we're going to go do charity for the poor, one of the things that I always want to ask the question is, are we really doing charity? Do we have a good understanding of what charity is? Do we have a good understanding of, of who the poor are and what we can do to help these people? Are we approaching this situation with a healthy balance of love and empathy and also logos, the orderly transformation that says we're not just going to slap a Band-Aid on this, but we're actually going to move you towards somewhere better? And especially in our modern culture where there are people who feel entitled to things. This is a, a place where we really have to ask the question, what is it that our goal is as a, a people of God, as the, the church? Especially from the standpoint of a, a Christian university, what, what is our standpoint and where do we go from here? Anthony? All right, so one thing that I think is interesting is that, okay, let's take a look at this and pretend that you know, we're not looking at the issue of whether or not contraceptives are okay and just look at what type of beneficial results is this going to produce? Why are they doing this? Okay, so the idea is they're poor and this is going to help them prevent pregnancy. Okay, yeah, but contraceptives are pretty readily available. They're fairly inexpensive and 
Not to mention the fact that, you know, there's always the number one easiest contraceptive, which is just, you know, maintain a little bit of discipline. Yeah. And, you know, not go out and do scandalous things. If you're in the position where you don't want to have kids. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's those things. And so we can see that there's not really a legitimate reason to provide the contraceptives. And then there's also the, to me, this seems really like more of a political statement. Yeah. Than anything else to, to provide any good means. It's, it's not really based in, in good. It's not based in a good reasoning and it's not going to produce any um, real beneficial results. We're not going to see a significant change from this yeah. in the lives of the students of Notre Dame, because I believe that they I believe that they could probably get a hold of contraceptives if they needed them. You yeah. Know? And Again, I think I, I think it, the, the biggest difference that's going to be here is political statements. It, it is. It does come across like a political statement. And again, basic understanding of how the world works. If you you subsidize things, you get more of it. If you tax them, you get less of it. And again, from the Christian university standpoint, there there should be some at least basic uh, code of ethics that says we are here for the purpose of holiness. I know um, it it always bothers me how much we have lowered the bar for so many things. But again, it does come across much more as a political statement than it does as anything meaningful because just as we understand college culture, if you're somewhere like Notre Dame, you're already having some sort of assistance to get there, either that or you, you come from a background where you're capable of, of producing enough to be there. There is a reason why you're there. And to yeah. to act like this is the threshold where, where we've got to step in and help people just seems a little bit ridiculous to me um, when you look at it in the context where it's at. It really does smell a lot more like some sort of virtue signaling or political statement than it seems like something being intellectually honest. Again, especially even if you try to sell the argument, oh, well, you've got to help the poor. Well, hang on a second. We've talked a little bit about taking the Lord's name in vain in past, and that's basically when you take and brand your own motive as if it's God's motive. Saying that this is helping the poor doesn't actually mean that it's helping the poor. Saying that this is charity doesn't actually mean that it's charity. Picking one virtue and throwing out all the other virtues doesn't necessarily make you a virtuous person. And in fact, it doesn't make you a virtuous person at all. One has to be well-rounded in their virtue. Just picking one is a very dangerous thing. Well, even if we if we pretend that they are being completely genuine, yeah, and that they really are trying to help out, I mean, I think that it can be, again, pretty obviously thought that you know you, they're not, they don't need that much help getting these contraceptives. Yeah, it's not. I mean, like you know, I'm pretty sure that there's plenty of actually federally funded places to go and get free contraceptives. Well, you know, so I don't I don't see beyond... this to be to be a real. Um, Back to your point about even if they're they're doing this in good faith, they actually believe that this is the right thing to do. Um, that doesn't also that doesn't make it the right thing to do. Just because you believe it's the right thing to do, you can still be doing bad things. I mean, yeah. C.S. Lewis talks about this quite a bit. I mean, the greatest tyrannies come from people who are sincerely doing. They think they're doing good. They're sincere about it. They they have no conscience about the tyranny they oppress other people with. People who have an ideology, they've got a concept, they think it's great, and they say, "Well, we're going to enforce this. We're going to do it." Well. If they believe that it's good, then they, they can do all co- sorts of tyrannical things um, free of conscience. It's a bad place to be. So wrapping this conversation up, I do think this is a bad move on Notre Dame. It does look a lot more like a political move than it does a, a serious move. Again, it's something which is really a small drop in the bucket um, in terms of the, the grand picture of things. But at the same time, it's a pretty big issue when it comes to where we're at morally as a culture and where we prioritize things. And I think that says more about it than the issue itself, just what it means for the larger picture. 
If you enjoyed our content, you can really help us out by grabbing a link and sharing it with a friend or family member. Again, just sharing our content can do so much to help us out in these early stages and that will do so much for us. Also, if you feel inclined, please leave us a comment or a review. We'll greatly appreciate that. And we also have recently set up an account on Patreon. And you can find us on at patreon.com slash kingdomofthelogos. So just search for us there on Patreon at Kingdom of the Logos. That will help us out tremendously. We're looking to expand our, our resources here, have a, a little bit of new equipment. And I'm hoping to be able to help Amanda and Anthony out who do so much wonderful work for me. Also, if you, you really haven't subscribed yet, you can find us on YouTube or on Facebook, and you can hit that like button or that subscribe button and follow us. That will do so much. Again, you can find our free podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and CastBox. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us and have a blessed day.